You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Shalom. This is Standing in Two Worlds with Dr. Sam Juni and Yerushalayim Irakadish. Um, Sam, I want to talk with you about something. Uh, I'm going to push it through despite um, a sore throat of something that happened in B'nai Brock, but of course is resonating everywhere in the Jewish world across the shores, and that is the suicide of Chaim Walder. Uh, you remember, of course, Sam, would, I want to start tonight with his suicide note. Now, you mentioned to me before we started recording that, you know, we don't have any proof that this is indeed his note. I, I, I'm not sure. Let's just assume it is. Yeah, and what's for argument's sake? Because we're not really going to talk about you know, Walder specifically, but using Walder as a jumping off point for people who decide to take their lives when they find things are so difficult. Um, there's been others, right, Sam, who, who, who didn't do this. They took their punishment or um, lived in shame and uh, uh, the embarrassment and shame of their lives. Or went out fighting. Right. And, and um, um, Walder sort of says he's going out fighting, but let's talk about this. The facts are he was, um, he shot himself yesterday. Okay. Um, by his 28-year-old son's grave who died of cancer a number of years ago. Um, and he writes in his notes, Sam, that the reason why that he's going, he believes that he's going to Shamayim. He's going to somehow get um, Yehuda Silman and Shmuel Eliyahu, the Rabbanim who are who have spearheaded the campaign, the Dine Torah against them, the ones that have collected the testimonies, the ones who have called for the banning of his books. Uh, he's going to take them to a Dine Torah in Shamayim. Um, he writes that, that in this world, that's this world, Sam. He sees this world as a world of lies. <laughs> yeah. Again, I, I'm restraining myself from making any comments, but in this world of lies, there's no possibility to prove his innocence. I am dealing with lies that are so immense that are covered up in anonymity without the ability to uh, uh, cross-examine, so to speak. But, and he can't ever prove the incident that he says, Ein lehem shachar, that really didn't occur. And, that, that, and therefore he says, I've reached what, like, it's beyond human capacity to be able to withstand Okay, so there, there he's going to Shemayim. He's going to kill himself and uh, wreak vengeance on his on the people that have uh, uh, hurt him, the people that are his tormentors. And he feels Sam that he has reached the end of his what any human being could stand. And then he explains the fact that that he has that what they have attacked is the best part of him. 
the parts of his life, the work that he did that was so great and that he gave his whole life for, and that is the protection and support of children. Um, And then he says that he thanks the people who supported him. And the ones that didn't, he says, even if you gave up on me, he begs not for his books, not to land in the in the in the incinerator pile. His works, don't give up on my works. And here he gets so passionate, Sam. And I, it was we before we started recording, I said, <clears throat> I've, I, you know, I can imagine forgeries based on copying. Uh, his writing, his handwriting. But this sounds so authentic. He says, I, I just want to read a little bit of in Hebrew and translate. He says, Kol shura every line, every word, every letter that's in them. They were written with a desire to benefit, to create a positive, l'shafer, to make it even, these are all synonyms for making things better. L'chazek, to strengthen, l'sayeya, to support. L'hanik, to, to confer, live note, to build. L'sakein, again, to fix the world. With an exclamation point. He says, Anything I wrote, was just to make the world better and then its inhabitants. Um, and he's, then he says that um, he, he gives thanks to his family that he loves and that supported him. That the, that's all his world. And then he says that I was given this job, <clears throat> this job, this shlichus, this divine mission <clears throat> that was put into my hands. And then he also thanks for the talent that he has and the the spirit and the <laughs> I don't know <clears throat> the largesse of his of his whole of his of his essence to be able to give to the world. And then Sam he says, God gave God gave it to the world through him. In other words, God gave these gifts using him as a, as a vessel. And now God has taken, let the name of God be blessed. Be in peace. Chaim Walder. Then I guess he takes the, and he takes the pistol and shoots his, and, 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 and points the, to the temple of his head and blows his brains out. All right, Sam. You, you, you... like this, a real boondoggle for people who are trying to figure out the, the mind of, um, of um, shall we say, patients or, or people who are under stress or who are, you know, basically falling into a um, state of um, psychological despair. And any kind of evidence like this, like written, written testimony is beautiful um, from a professional point of view. I also just, of course, let's just make it clear that we're not necessarily talking about him because I don't know the facts. The... Um, We'll assume that the suicide note is not a forgery, and we'll also assume that the allegations that have come up probably uh, indicate that this person was a 
major molester, as I would just say statistically, it's very likely when you have like a, what is it, like 24, 27 uh, people who've come forward, it's likely that he is probably a perp. So again, I'm not interested in passing judgment to him because it's not my job and I wouldn't take that kind of job, but I want to take that as a case study and assume that we're going to, our basic premise is that this is a suicide note and that the accusations against him are accurate. So I just want to point out several things that are going on over here. There is no mention in this um, suicide note about the fact that he's committing suicide on the grave of his beloved son who died of um, cancer, you say, a while before that. And um, again, you can't just say that that's something that he didn't think of mentioning or that uh, that's gratuitous. So that is something that's a chink. It uh, implies that there's something more that's going on here from his point of view. I'm not interested in truth here. I want to know how does he view himself? That's the, the, the psychiatric challenge here. How does he view it? Um, okay, so we'll begin with that. I also just want to say that since I uh, am trained to be a cynic, I would just say that he's talking about to the people who believe the accusations against him, don't take it out of my books because these books are pure uh, of heart. So he's basically saying that even though he um, was a molester, right, according to that assumption, but his books were written totally for the um, glorification of God and to protect children, etc., which doesn't sound like a very compelling argument or convincing argument, because it's um, known that perpetrators will generally seek um, positions of um, control over their victims so that they can victimize them. So my cynical response will be, sure, don't take it out of my book because I love my family so much. I'd like this to be a source of income of them that they will manage, you know, the Walder uh, Library, copyright or whatever it is. So it it sounds just uh, very unconvincing. Um, Okay, so now let me just say this. Um, The primary understanding in psychodynamic theory of suicide attributes it to a um, an alleged inborn drive which uh, Freud called thanatos which is that there's a tendency within people to try to destroy themselves which of course is not consistent with the tendency to try to live and to try to take care of yourself and to try to better yourself so Freud hypothesized that there is a a, a drive which is oriented towards trying to kill yourself, towards hurt yourself, which is present in everyone. And it is juxtaposed to the basic drives which which, uh, promote self-preservation. So I'm not a modest fellow. And I have to say that um, the point where Freud comes out with Thanatos is where I parted ways with him. I don't believe in Thanatos. I believe that any kind of self-harm that comes up is contextual or it's based on self-punishment needs due to guilt. That's my basic approach. So with my saying that, um, I have to say that I am stumped by the suicide phenomenon. When you see suicide phenomenon, there are several things that stand out that just seem kind of peculiar. And, And let me say what they are. Um, there's an overriding feeling 
of guilt and clinical depression, which means people who are clinically depressed, and that doesn't just mean you're in a bad mood. Clinical depression is a syndrome. Um, clinical depression always comes along with guilt. And I have had like a, quite a time trying to discuss with patients guilt, especially patients who are not religious and don't subscribe to any kind of moral criterion that are systematized in any way. And I said, they, they are, their idea is, I deserve to be punished. And deserve to be punished by whom? By what? What are we talking about here? And of course, psychoanalytically, what it means is that they, as kids, there's a kind of feeling that, you know, daddy's going to get you, mommy's going to get you, I did something, they're expecting mommy or daddy to come, and that gets confused with deserving. But it's not sufficient to explain this kind of odd feeling. Also, within clinical depression, um, you find a higher incidence, obviously, of suicide, but not so significantly higher, but it's much higher. In other words, among suicidal people, clinical depression is much more common than among non-suicidal people, although it's not true that um, clinical depression is a significant cause of suicide. I'm sorry for playing statistical mumbo-jumbo here, but that's the truth. Um, but still, I find the suicide phenomenon not really explainable by people who are clinically depressed. They can't really explain why it is they want to kill themselves or why they're doing this. It almost seems to me, you know, that I have to admit there's thanatos running over there. So you don't have to ask people, hey, why are you uh, driven towards sexual activity? That's, that's not a bona fide question. Nobody, and by the same token, you can't ask, why are you driven by an aggressive need to hurt somebody else? Because that also is just part of your nature. But I never thought that suicide is something that's there. And my position is belied by the facts and suicide. So that, that, that does make me feel that Thanatos is a real, um, uh, um, either it's a inborn drive or it's something physiological that kicks in at a certain point. So that I just needed to say that to, to clear my theoretical head over here. All right. So. Um, so you, sa- you sound like you're in a quandary, Sam. You sound yeah, like I sound like I'm not happy with my approach where I've managed, you know, in my non-modesty to believe that I understand everything. And here is something that stumps me. Suicide is something that stumps me, which almost makes me want to go over to the opposition, which is Freud's basic Thanatos approach, which is not the end of the world, because I see it also. I see aggression as inborn, but I don't see self-hate as inborn. I see that purely as guilt. So when I see this, I still like to say, okay, this person feels so terrible about something that he's done that he deserves to be punished based on some kind of system that he believes in. But um, maybe believe is something that I'm idealizing. Maybe it means they just have a gut feeling or they've been used to getting punished. So they know it's coming and they're protecting themselves because no doubt mom finds out everything that she comes after me for doing these evil things. So yeah, yeah, I am not totally um, settled on this, but I'm willing to roll with it. I mean, I, I don't mind going out on a limb even when I feel that I don't have solid footing under my feet. Um, so let me just um, say what I am most fascinated with, with psychopaths, and this person, according to what's going on here, seems to be a psychopath because it's someone who supposedly has values and he's violating them left and right, and he has an aplomb or even like a, 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 a defiant stance saying, no, it's really all good. And even, you know, if I'm bad, but don't hold it against my product because my had this 
totally 100% L'shem Shemayim feeling when I was writing this stuff. I took some breaks to molest a woman here, a guy here, but, but, but basically, as soon as the, those uh, fugues were over, I was writing again with a total devotion to protect these kids. Not for me, protect them from everybody else, maybe leave them for me so that I can have my way with it. Okay, I'm being cynical, but, but this is basically, that's why it's so fascinating because this guy is not a fraud. In other words, he's not saying, yes, I have to get close to kids. So I've looked at whatever system will get me close to them. And I found this Haredi system where I can preach and sell books and have a big, you know, back back room where, where he did the molestations in this bookstore and it allowed me to pass through. That's a clean psychopath. I have no problem with the, um, shall we say, the logical consistency. I never call a clean psychopath crazy. Somebody who knows what he's doing and is just basically manipulated to convince people that he wants X and Y, but really this is devotion. Um, this is what I do. Fine. But that's not him. He's coming across as someone who really believes in his um, purity with um, not addressing the fact that maybe sometimes, not maybe, certain times or whatever, he, he digresses away. And that's what makes him um, uh, uh, be guilty. So th- that's the fascination that we have with this kind of person. And then he talks about, okay, so he's going to go to um, to heaven. He's got his exit ticket by putting a bullet into his head. And now he can go up there and now he can talk to God. Now, if I were God, I'd say, Mr., just get out of here. Why don't you go see a shrink? You know, what, what are you saying? You are guilty. What, what are you bothering people for? So he sounds like he's not totally straight in his mind. Nobody's totally straight during suicide, except I want to just, I'll get to the exception later. But usually when you have an emotional suicide, I can't take it anymore. Things are hounding me. I'm going to go and get back at these guys. There's something loose inside, which is fine. And I, and I know just the loose spot. Um. Okay, so I think I've made sense of that. That often occurs when people commit suicide. It's akin to the people who are very concerned about what their funeral would look like, which music you play, and who will say what to whom. There is a childish um, inability to understand that you are not alive after you're dead. I mean, it's a concept that um, some adults have learned to accept at least consciously, but unconsciously it lives on that, of course, I'm there. So, you know, you're concerned about how cold the climate is where you're buried and you want to make sure people come and visit and you have a very nice gravestone because people will read it and you'll sit there saying, ha, okay? While you're sitting there saying, ha, what you're also doing is thinking about the effect this is having on people and then thinking that somehow this will relate to you. So in his ideas, let's say some people commit suicide, kids especially, I've seen that repeatedly, and it's to show the parents how wrong they were, show the authorities how wrong they were in pushing them around so that they'll come around and stop pushing them around. The gap is only that once you're dead, ain't nobody pushing you anywhere, but it still is there. So, so his, what he really wants to do in his presentation is to redeem himself, right? I'm going to show these guys. I'm going to go kill myself. And then this, these two rabbis who are running the tribunal will feel so guilty and so bad. They'll come around and then I'll get my bookstore back. But, you know, they don't have bookstores for dead guys. You know, he's not going to write anymore. But this is something loose that's very common among them, you know, people when they're committing suicide because they're essentially deranged. To a certain extent, I've seen um, uh, people. I know there are some tubists that I was 
well, very well aware of. I remember um, in some major yeshiva, there were was one major suicide that actually, you know, had some close contact with. And the the uh, the Jewish tradition, or halacha, I'm not sure which one it is, is not to bury suicide people. Pe- pe- Per, serve, per, I'm sorry, suicide victims, not to bury them in the cemetery. Right, Meikar Adin in Masechta Smochis talks about treating okay. them as as Rishoyim, but yeah, the Hanhoga right. of the Poskim has been of the of the responsive. To, to, is, is to basically saying. is to assume that they were taken by a bout yeah. of insanity, and An that even spirit. if sure, sure, which basically means that they're nuts. That they're not thinking, and and that that's the case, especially when you, when you talk to them, to people who had near suicides, or you find notes which are legitimate. You see this. There's an illogic there. They'll come back and and and, and apologize to me, and then I'll feel much better. So th- that's running over there. Okay, so let me just get to my exception. There is a rare um, instance. Um, I've met. The, a patient like that once, okay? And I've seen a lot of patients, okay? Of somebody who does a Sartre kind of philosophical suicide, okay? So basically saying this world is terrible. You know, I see no reason to go on with it. Not because I'm going to get in trouble. Even some people do it personally. I mean, the idea of um, some uh, secret agents getting cyanide pills to kill themselves just to save themselves the horrible torture they can expect or ignominy, or even in this case, being exercised and people dumping on you, that's logical. And what's, I don't want to go through that. I'm a cancer patient. I don't want the pain, period. Or in the pure philosophical form, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in values. I don't want to, why should I be here? Why should I subject myself to the pain when in my belief, I can just turn off the pain? None of what I said applies to those people. They are totally logical, cool-headed. They make the decision the same way they decide whether to buy a car or what kind of brand of soda to buy. They're just as logical. But the ones who do it for reasons of distress and emotions, and that's where the Thanatos question comes up, that's where this kind of fascination for me goes on. In other words, I'd like to see where their logic goes wrong because of their emotionality and where their judgment goes. But because just on paper to present this kind of argument to say I was pure and clean and every, what does he word say? Every sentence or every word was totally God devoted, notwithstanding the breaks I took to molest people left and right. Okay. I also want to make another comment, which has to do with psychosexual development. Okay. Um, most people don't have um, shall we say, a um, polymorphously perverse um, attitude towards sexuality. Most people don't say, yes, I enjoy having sex with men, with women, young kids, old kids, single, married. It doesn't work like that. And, and we've been hit by two people, a very recent memory with that. We had the, uh, the story of Meshi Zahav, who was molesting Boys, girls, children, adults across the board, and we've had this particular the test the the corpus of testimony against Walder is the same issue. He's been doing it all the way across the board. That is not what let's say the uh, the the responsive people would call problems with controlling your id. That's not what's going on here because your id is not all over the place like that unless you're really psychiatrically disturbed. Most people have a predilection. I like men. I like boys. 
I like little girls before, pu- before puberty. I'm not even saying per- perverts. I'm saying people who you talk to them in psychoanalysis. They don't go out and do it, but they're bothered by these thoughts, right? Many people, most people are bothered by the thoughts and don't become perpetrators. They, they wind up at psychiatrists, okay? But you don't find people to say, you know, I'd like to have sex and rape everything and everybody, Coke bottles, telephones, it doesn't matter, people, big people, old people, married people, that's not around. This really speaks to a regression, it's either a fixation or regression, I'm not sure what it is, if you don't know the difference, fine, ignore that. It's very early, this is pre edible it's pre-genital, it's some kind of a, uh, an odd bodily stimulation that just reduces everybody to a sexual object, which is not sexual in nature. It's more aggressive. It's more dehumanizing. It's more counterphobic. It's almost like saying, I can't deal with anything. So I have this common construct that everybody is a sex object and that allows me to deal with them. It's quite regressed. It's quite regressed, which means these are people who, when you go to their thought processes, are quite disorganized. It does not fit the profile of somebody who can write logical and um, socially um, uh, intriguing works such as this guy wrote. I told you, I, I mentioned before, my daughter was a big fan of his writings. Many people were big fans of his personally. And he definitely presents an approach that if you said, let's say that somebody um, as sophisticated as Anna Freud may have, a, better, a student of Anna Freud, they say, oh, sure, it makes a lot of sense what he's saying. Sounds like a sophisticated person who has a key understanding of children. That does not match with somebody who has this pansexual attitude. So again, we're getting to a point where I don't quite understand things that well. I still will insist on making my half points, but to come up with the overall picture over here, the only one that really makes sense to me is that he was a total psychopath and that he did all this. He's just good. There are con artists who know how to sing songs and know how to say, okay, I know exactly what you want me to say, and they will sell you the book on bridge. He knew what the audience wanted. He knew how to package it nicely. And he just sang the game, but we asked him in truth, what are you really after? He says, I'm after being able to find some victims. And this is my way to do it. And if I have to sing or dance in a certain way, that is the most logical, or shall we say, the most reductionistic way to make sense of this kind of multi-determined problems that are coming up, because that answers it all. That answers it all. So he really is a genius of, of a, a Lothario of immense genius. An evil person who, even at the end, is, as you say, sensitive to how he's going to be perceived. And I'm not so sure what he's, again, I'd say most psychopaths of that sort are not sensitive to the way how they'll be perceived. They just want him, he loves his family. I believe that. He wants to make sure they have a constant foundation and an income. Most people like this don't care about what you're going to say about them, even when they're alive. In other words, if I achieve my ends, uh, Madoff cared what you said about him. He got what he wanted. He's done. So in general, Sam, when people leave suicide notes, is that, do you expect them to be as obfuscated as what we saw here? How many, is a, when does a suicide note the final real essence of what a person is about that he finally discovered. Never, never, never unless they are, I I get that exception. Those that are, 
like an agent who kills himself, somebody who doesn't want to fall into enemy hands, somebody who does not want to go to prison for years because of a venture that he tried and it didn't work, they can be genuine. The other ones are still scheming because psychologically they don't think that that's really the end and they're going to come back. I don't know what they think they're going to do. Right, but as you say, many of us, the people who write, as you're saying, Sam, people who write very detailed wills right, and leave it to the family, you believe are also, in a way, suffering from not understanding that this is the end of the road. Sure, because if you think of it, again, again, let's just subtract the religious factor. Let's say you're an atheist. What do you care about these people who somehow were born out of your genes? I mean, they they have nothing to do with you. They're they're not you. You're not going to be there. What's going on? What's bugging you? Who are these people to you? Let's say if somebody said, I took some DNAs that resembled you, I cloned something, leave me alone. Yeah. Somebody managed to replicate the clone using a computer program that for a guy that looks just like me. I say, fine, send him regards, don't send him regards. I don't need to meet him. I don't care what happens to him. He's an artifact. And yes. basically, uh, that's, uh, what, uh, that's uh, what other people are. Go ahead. Yeah. Again, this really opens up a whole fascinating area because I happen to be a little bit of a devotee of collecting. Jewish wills of, of Rabbonim and, and people mm-hmm. who, who give over in such detail what they want. Now, obviously, from my perspective, you know, they do believe in this. They do believe in the Oilam Haba. They sure. do believe oh, in that. That, that changes the ball game. That changes right. the ball and game. And they do believe. Because that means the ball game doesn't end. That's right. That's right. And and, and in some way, although they might not be as as, as cognizant uh, in a in a in a physical way, Somehow they are aware and they believe it's to the benefit of their soul or of their family for all these things to happen. And um, you're saying from a psychological perspective, it comes from an inability to really comprehend that you're not there, right? That's what you're saying. The finality of death is something we don't want to comprehend. And And that is something that all of us really, in a way, have. In, in, in various in various amounts. Otherwise, it would be very difficult to get up in the morning and struggle through, right? If we were just saying, hey, you're going to die. Oh, and, and let me just say something. There's a cynical approach to believing in the afterlife. Yeah. And that is, it's not because you believe in the afterlife that your life becomes important. It's because you don't dare face the fact that there is no afterlife, that you concoct a belief. So it's like the the whole the, the tail which is you know motivating the whole dog here rather than the other way around. So some people will say, sure you believe in the afterlife because you can't dare not believe in it. So you make yourself think that you believe in it. Yeah, okay. Which is again a, 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 obviously this is why Judaism and Christianity and other religions have have pushed that despite the fact that the references um, let, let's just say Orthodox Judaism. You don't want to include Reformed Judaism. Okay, but there, even despite the fact that the references are oblique, it has been something that we hear from the time yeah, we are five years maxim, old. Sure, it's been a maxim. Sure, it's been a maxim. Oilam Habo, Oilam Habo, Oilam You have to live for Oilam Habo, which of course um, makes sense. Um, you know the. Um, but but yet, let me just add that there is a way of doing this which I don't quite understand because I don't understand the culture. In the um, like in in the Chinese and Japanese culture, there's a way of like let's say if you think of the psychology, what I've looked at of kamikaze pilots, right, or 
suicides that are done for social reasons with no belief in the afterlife. And yet there's a kind of a, they cloak it up as a collective identity that I'm doing it for us. And the us continues to exist, even though I don't. So that's some kind of a, uh, shall we say, philosophical double talk, which somehow is a substitute for some kind of organized religious perspective. Well, it's in a way, Sam, what you're saying is really the humanistic or ecological um, perspective that we need to leave a better planet and that mm-hmm. we that right. we that we need to uh, contain our use of carbon-based gases uh, yes. because because we because we have a responsibility to the world that comes after us, right? And this is sure. something that you hear, and you're right. A lot of the people who are saying this don't believe in any godly power of creation, right? Right. So it's but, like the computer is saying that he, that the computer has a responsibility to make sure that it uses the least, least, least amount of CPU, given the electricity, like you, know, you say, hey, what's wrong with your computer? Do you need an, do you need an aspirin or something? What are you saying? Are you delusional? Why sure. is the, when the computer goes and you're saying the computer goes into low, uh, low usage mode? On its own, to... because it wants to make sure it preserves it. Not that it's programmed, well, but it so... has a responsibility to electricity. Okay. You know, I think, Sam, you know, the... Um... You know, doesn't it, it, you know the suicide? Um, let's talk about Walder's suicide again, since where we started. Um, there doesn't seem to be any apology whatsoever, um, as if he's hurt anyone. Like mm-hmm. clearly, you know, in his mind, you know, he said that these are lies and fabrications. We know, as my son has pointed out. And that there was a tzav against him. Um, there was a woman who he was having an affair with mm-hmm. at the, a Besden in some area uh, specifically knew about it and, and wrote that she is also to ever live with him. And that, that, that document has surfaced. Um, you know, he, he clearly cannot you know, deny whether whether the people who are testifying are testifying accurately, he doesn't say that these are all. This is like a um, a campaign that is completely fabricated. Did he? Did he believe? I think. I th- I'm sorry. I think what you're missing here is that you're taking him at kind of face value on what he's writing. You have two options here. Number one, that he thinks he's Jesus or Napoleon. Which don't rule that out because I've had quite a few people look very intact and just tickle the system to say, yeah, but it doesn't apply to me because I'm Shabtai Tzvi or I'm Mohammed. I've seen that. And there is also something that's less crazy than that, which is that I'm, I haven't mentioned this, but these are people I really helped. Don't you understand? These people needed to have sex with me in order to fulfill themselves to make their marriage work. I mean, you name it. There's all kinds of excuses before you hit pure, like delusional um, uh, paranoia that you're Jesus or whatever, that somehow you were trying to help them, but that he's not going to put that in the letter of confession because most people don't understand. They'll think, oh no, he was just doing it for his own jollies. Oh no, he was really interested in helping them and getting them to understand what sexuality is, getting them in touch with their feeling, which is the kind of poppycock perverts usually sell to their victims if they're using this kind of approach rather than forcing them. 
So yeah, that yeah. might be why he's not apologizing because yeah. you think he really did do the right thing, although he can't explain it to most people because most people are cynical and don't realize that he's such a special person. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that a recording came out, I think, recently where I don't know, I guess the woman put her phone on. I don't know how they have this recording, but there is a recording of him talking to a woman and they are discussing about how her husband might discover their affair. And he says that if you have to deny it and deny it, and even if pictures come up, say that it's Photoshop, that these are all phony pictures that you have of us, because if it's, if, if, if it doesn't get denied, then I'm going to just shoot myself, right? He says that I'm going to have to go shoot myself. So that's not a suicide note, but now that I no, told no, but, you... But this makes sense of a regressive personality because he's basically saying, like, this is what a three-year-old will tell his mother. Like, you know, if you do that, I'm going to cry and I'm going to be upset and whatever. And trying to make her, um, to evoke her sympathy by putting himself in the role of the little child and putting the role of the victim as the protector. That speaks to the regressive argument I made earlier that this is not just, let's say, somebody who's just very sexually driven. There's something much more profound that somebody's stuck at the oral stage, basically. Same way, let's end this conversation with this. You know, Walder could have faced the music. Now, I'm not going to say like from Shmuelio, he could have done Shuva and he could have apologized. I'm glad you're not saying that because that would get me to launch off on something else. Yeah, yeah. But I'm saying that there have been others, and I've known them, unfortunately, and I've come into contact with them and had to speak with them, and who have taken the medicine, who have um, gone through the process, who have been arraigned in secular court, who have had to answer, who have had to live in infamy and be a registered sex offender and deal with it. Um, now you talked before about people. Right? What would you say is the is the essential difference between the ones who could take the music and the ones who say, like Walder, that you know that that they have to, to push themselves to to take their own lives? What is the what is the what is the essential in your mind um, difference between this one and the other? Um, my first reaction is that those who face the music are cowards that they don't have the guts to kill themselves. And that's definitely wow. a major belief. You sure. know, you shocked me. In other words, Walder's not, a guy like Walder is not a coward, but somebody who... who... He knows how to read the cards. He realizes that he'll never have the bookstore or his fame or everybody <laughs> will spit at him. Sure, sure. So, in other words, sure. the one who, who, who can't bring himself to put the bullet in his head is actually more of a coward, you're saying. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's, my, that's the prime. And I think, I think that accounts for most of it. Now, for most people who realize what their life is going to be like, that matters. The other one is that Walder has a regard for his esteem. For some people, the main idea is survival. And now we're getting to there. I have some of that from you know, various kinds of uh, victims of atrocities, especially the Holocaust. They didn't care what they had to do, right? I survived, so there. You know, it's I won. Did you really win? Do you have any of your self-esteem? Do you have any respect for yourself? Do you see yourself other than somebody who's a scurrilous um, collaborator who got other people killed in the process? That's not what matters, the bottom line. So in other words, what I'm saying, perhaps in a redeeming way, is that he does have some regard 
for how he views himself. And he has some amount of investment in his self-image. And he says, I'm not going to have that. What do, what's it worth? But for some people, it doesn't matter. I got what I... I said it was the last point, but I think all of us in some ways um, look at our work and say, judge me by the best things that I've done, not <laughs> by the parts of me that I'm not so, that I'm ashamed of. I think all of us do that. We, mm-hmm. we, we all have, you know, whether it's a great shear that you gave, a great different that you gave, something that you somehow distilled the best of yourself in order to make it happen. And we're not always able to do that. Um, and, and many times the people closest to us will throw that in our face and say, look, okay, this was great, but why couldn't you be great consistently? Why weren't you great in your, in, in, in your interpersonal relationships? Right? I mean, I, I'll give you an example. Um, one of the, you know, the, the Nobel Prize winner, you know, Saul Bellow. Um, you know, people, some people think his books are some of the greatest uh, cont- contributions to English literature, English meaning in the English language uh, in the 20th century. And yet we know his interpersonal relationships were horrible. And his defenders have said, okay, but look how beneficial his books have been. That was the best part of him. Um, when, whenever someone dies, we need to, in a way, see these two aspects. Um, we can't always go back. I mean, the same thing is really being said about Thomas Jefferson and others, that you know, we, we can't just pull down his statue because of the way he dealt with Sally Hemings and his slave owning and some of the other um, uh, delusions that he had of his greatness. What about the, the Declaration of Independence? What about other writings and other works? So I think in many ways, Sam, the idea of, you know, it doesn't necessarily speak to, to psychosis. I think none of us are perfect, but we can always in some ways be <clears throat> extremely <clears throat> if not proud, but at least recognize that we were able to put it together for something. Um, we were able to to right uh, to have that great football game where we were perfect, even though afterwards we we perhaps didn't act the way we should in the bar, but at least on the field we showed the heart of a champion. So, so I, I don't know if that's really a, a, a psychotic thing. I think this is really the, the essence of the human condition in some ways, um, is to be able to summon up incredible energies to produce something and yet not always be able to, to live on the highest level. Um, I, I, I listen, I, I haven't read Walder's books, but, but I think that that element that you zeroed in on I think it's extremely common, especially by creative people, especially by people who are artists. I don't know if Walter is an artist, but whether it's a sports person or a director of films or a writer or a Tamil Chacham who, you know, who is, who, who's, who's written Svarim and yet, you know, doesn't speak to people in his family and is not considered such a nice guy. <laughs> and the list, I think, is immense. Shoal Lieberman produced probably some of the greatest rabbinic scholarship that, uh, of the 20th century. 
I don't think it was, I don't think that Tesefta, uh, uh, Kipshuto has ever been surpassed. I don't think it's, it is, it is immense, incredible. But Lieberman in his personal life was not, again, he was not a nice guy. <laughs> it wasn't a nice gentleman uh, when he, you know, although his, his students loved him because of his brilliance. Um, and, and again, I, I, I have the greatest, greatest respect for him. So, you know, like I said, I think that the, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if that's all. Uh, um, there is no problem with people having weaknesses or really bad shortcomings along with significant achievements. It's when the shortcomings belie the achievements because they are in the very same dimension that it becomes problematical. So let's say if he would produce some great works of art, if he was a sculptor, if he was a Talmudic scholar even, okay, and he was also a pervert, that's not contradictory. One has to do with intellectual ability, the ability to analyze. One has to do with values and with being able to control your, um, your id. Okay, I get it. But when you say that you were totally motivated in your uh, positive productions to help the very people whom you were hurting in the other side of your life, that implies that you have to have literally a break a la Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. And that is psychotic stuff, or at least dissociative stuff. That is, that is psychiatric. Okay, that's not saying, yes, yes, I have some achievements, like like um, Eichmann Lehavdil, which, I don't know if it's Lehavdil, okay, would, would say, yes, but I also once gave a lolly to someone, or I, pet, I used to pet my dog, or I used to remember always to give my grandkids gifts on their birthdays. So that means I'm a nice guy. Don't say you're a nice guy, okay? Say that you had family okay. value. I'll grant you that. So, so this is the distinction that we're talking about. No, no, no granted. It, it, it's, it's, you, know, you know, they say, Sam, that um, when they talk about, um, and I've heard this, especially after, you know, a great rabbi has died and all his, um, his students come and the students will come and, and talk about uh, his, as we could say, the Messiros Nefesh, how dedicated he was and how wonderful he was. And the children are interestingly, like, and many times are like on the side, like quizzical and saying that that really that doesn't sound like our dad. Um, and, and, and you hear this a lot, that the shoemaker's children have no shoes. A lot of times there are rabbeim and people who are involved in, in teaching that are much more dedicated to their students than they are to the people in their family. And mm-hmm. I think I think that is a common thing. I'm not trying to equate Walder to them, but that would be closer to what you're saying, because here, you know, um, you know you, you, there, there was so much love and giving, and yet they weren't able to manage this within the dynamics of their own family. It, it, it cut too close. Mm-hmm. The way I would explain it, and I'm uh, an armchair, it's sometimes easier because of that distance. Because of that distance, you're able to say, look, you're right. My kids, I got so much invested. There's so much frustration. It bothers me when I study with them. I see my own weakness in them. When I can put on the mask of rabbi, when I can put on the mask of teacher, when I have that safe area where I can close the door and do what I want, so then when I'm on stage, I could invest it 
with mm-hmm. a reality and a spirit and a positivity. It's where yeah, it's... What you're saying makes a lot... I think you can simplify it and take away some of the detractors by talking about a, ment- a, a let's say, a, a physician who smokes or a cardiologist who yes. eats same thing. Fats. Yeah, yeah. It's the same thing. Sure. Right, right. Because in, in, in the mode, when he has the white coat and he's tapping the books and the mental energy of what he knows... He, he distills it with perfection. But yet, when he shuts the door, you know, and he sits back and pours himself a drink and smokes and undoes his belt and lets his bulging belly come in. So then he's, he's not that person. Is he a hypocrite? Is he someone who is, 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 is psychotic? No, I think. No, nope, no. Nope. I, I, so, so I would say you're right. There's, you know, obviously Walter is a Russia, Marusha. And and again, I condemn him as a as, as a very troubled, like and as you said, a psychosexual, um, really incredible, terrible case. So you condemn him as a perp. That he's troubled is not a reason to condemn someone. That's looking what... back at ourselves because I think every suicide, Sam, whatever it is, makes you think about your own mortality and your own life, even if it's a suicide that's done by someone extremely disturbed. So looking at Walder and looking at these contradictions. I think it's allowed me in this conversation to sort of look at a um, at a scale, and you're right. The scale of Walter is is monstrous. However, I think in some ways we all would like to feel that we live forever and there's a legacy beyond us. Um, and I think we all, in some ways, um, have elements again you're right there are people like the Chafetz Chaim and the Chazanish and others that from what we hear about them they were the same always but we all have different masks and different aspects of ourselves and 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 we don't necessarily consider them duplicitous and phony or disqualifying is the word right we say this is the best part of what I do Mm -hmm. and God put me in this world to be this to be this doctor to be this teacher to be Lieberman I don't have to be Lieberman when I'm home, but the, but you know what? Because I was Lieberman, I was able to 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 to, to put these works into the world. All right, Sam. We should hear only as we say, absurdus tevis. And again, uh, from our perspective, the the victims should somehow be able to recover and find some sort of solace and and somehow get the, hopefully their lives uh, will not be as damaged as. As, as, as they are now and they can somehow move beyond this. Take care, Sam. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Music.